this podcast, serial entrepreneur Josh Linkner talks about innovating through the big little breakthroughs. So stay tuned. Welcome, Josh Linkner, to our conversation. And very few times we have guests who truly embodied um, one of the critical elements of work um, that we are seeing today. And creativity is one of those things. And um, Josh, he has been a serial founder. Can we say that? You have founded five companies. So you are pretty much like a, a pretty stoke embodiment. New York Times bestsellers writing a lot about um, creativity. So if you are here for some creative discussion, you're at the right place. So Josh, well, with that, welcome to the show. Truly a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks. Awesome. So um, let's let's talk about your journey to creativity. What, what brought you to this side of the world? <laughs> well, so I started my career as a jazz guitarist of all things. Uh, I've just always loved the idea of, of spontaneous creativity, of making stuff up as you go and improvising and being agile. And so I, I put myself through college playing music, but at age 20, I started a company. And, and by the way, I'd never taken a class in business. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was a bit of a tech nerd. At the time, I wrote software way in the years prior on an Atari 800 computer, believe it or not. But it was, um, it was 1990, and, and I saw an opportunity, and I started a tech company. And uh, since then, you know, fast forward, I've, I've started, built, and sold five of them and helped get about 100 other startups off the ground. So anyway, long story short, for my 30 years of experience in business, the driving force for me has been human creativity. I'm deeply passionate about it. I really believe that me and you and others have, have huge reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. So if we can help unlock it and unleash it, man, the world's just a better place. I think beautifully put. Uh, so walk us through your five startups. Like what what were those and what what area were you into and, and, and for our listeners and viewers? Sure. And, you know, to be clear, uh, I've had some success, but none of them were Facebook or anything, which I really, uh, I'm kind of proud of because, you know, we often think of, of creative or innovative people that unless it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, that it doesn't count. And, and I think we can all have wonderful, meaningful, successful lives without being a celebrity. Um, but in my case, when I was 20, I started assembling uh, PCs in my college apartment. I would literally mail order like a motherboard and, a, and an amber screen monitor and a 10 meg hard drive and I slapped these together and sold them at a discount on campus. I ended up taking a year off of college and building up a little retail op operation. Uh, sold that uh, before I graduated. Second company was sort of similar, although more, more corporate clients. I did sort of hardware installations and networking. Um, but where that really led me to was, and I sold that company very quickly, by the way. Uh, one of my suppliers wanted my customer base. But in 1995, I saw this thing called the internet. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever because like, it was part creativity and part design and part advertising and part tech. So I literally started a web design company in 95 and no one even knew what a website was. At the time, less than 2% of companies had a corporate website and I started building them. We built, built Ford Motor Company's first intranet and I built Whirlpool's first website and we built major sites. I sold the company in 99. And so I was just starting to get into the rhythm of building tech companies. Uh, but the largest company that I started and grew uh, was called ePrize. I started in 1999. It was sort of an intersection of like half ad agency and half software company. We became the largest digital promotion agency in the world, serving 74 of the top 100 brands. I had about 500 employees uh, by the time I sold the company in 2012. Fascinating. So, um, it, through this journey, like what brought you to the to the to the passion of talking about uh, creativity 
or innovation? What I realized early on, I mean, sort of introspectively, is I, I've got so many flaws, like you don't have a long enough program to count them all. But but the one thing I was kind of good at was was looking at the world creatively. And and the thing was interesting to me, though, is that I didn't think it was something that I'm naturally talented in. I just sort of developed those skills over the years. And And by the way, now that I'm more of an expert in it, the research is crystal clear that I'm not more creative than you or vice versa. We both are, are human beings and we both can learn to be creative, just like we can learn to play tennis or learn a new language. And so it was just a, a technique that I started to develop and it really became the driving force. You know, when I was able to enjoy the success that I've had, it was it was through creativity. And so then I became a bit on this crazed mission to help other people do the same. I just feel like in an age where where it's more competitive than ever and more fast moving and difficult and 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 all the many many of the advantages of the past have become automated or or tech or, or or outsourced. The one thing that can save a company or a career is harnessing human creativity. It's the one thing that can drive us forward as a civilization. And I'm just passionate about helping people do that. That's beautifully put, um, Josh. So um, in, in in your journey um, in spreading the word on innovation and spreading the word on creativity. What are some of the pleasant surprises that you have seen um, from the, uh, the businesses or, or people getting it or not getting it? Like, what, what are some things that stuns you when you go out and talk, preach about the idea of innovation and creativity? Yeah, outstanding question. So um, in this last book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews. I interviewed CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders and military people, all kinds of cool people. Uh, but what I, I learned uh, through, through that research and, and my other work uh, are many, many of the myths are truly have been uh, proved false. First of all, we believe that innovation only counts if it changes the world or if it's a, a billion dollar idea. And, and the truth is that, that innovations, uh, the big ones are the ones we notice, but the small ones are the ones that really drive our economy and, and drive success for most people. And that just because an idea is small, uh, doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, that could actually be a good thing. So the book really flips innovation upside down, ch challenging people to look for small everyday acts of creativity, little micro innovations, which are less risky and totally within our grasp and, and, and they add up to big things while developing our skill set. And so I learned that you don't have to be wearing a hoodie or a lab coat to be innovative. Innovation is something that we all share regardless of race, gender, background, age, place, position, title, et cetera. Um, another thing that I learned, by the way, is that it was surprising to answer your question, that human creativity is, is within the grasp of every person. Many of us think that you're either creative or you're not. Like you're, you're born with this gift, you're, you're imbued with a lightning bolt from the gods, <clears throat> or you have to suffer and you're never going to be creative. And the, and the truth is, and the research is crystal clear, that as human beings, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. I like to say, if you're breathing, you're creative. And yeah, we may need to develop some skill set, but we all, and I mean all of us, have the capacity to be creative. And it doesn't have to do with job title. You know, we think that the musicians are creative and, and, and statisticians are not. And that's nonsense. We can all be creative in our own ways. So all this cumulative uh, co combined to, to this really empowering and liberating philosophy that this is this universal truth. It's a, it's a capability that can level the playing field for those of us that are disadvantaged. And it can make a real difference in, in our careers, in our families, in our communities, and our lives. I think that's so, Josh, that's fascinatingly put, by the way. So um, we, were, we were briefly chatting before our conversation as well. So I am myself a computational scientist and I design algorithms to automate human behavior in, 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 in software. And whenever I look at, look at sort of how we think or the anatomy of brain, it is actually meant, it functions really, really well when it's creating connections. It's, it's basically, it's, it's the act of thinking or creative and think of or creating innovations. 
but when we when we look at how we are training ourselves like from the schools to um, um, my my like uh, academics to getting into a job and learning particular craft it's pretty industrialized way to but stereotypically sort of uh, hardwire some connection so it it doesn't innovate that well so what's what's your take on that like how as as a business we should we, do, we should forge a balance between being creative and being sort of very structurally um, i don't know stable if that's even a thing well, there were two questions yes and there the first one was around education and i think you're totally right unfortunately our educational system tends to uh, to to beat the creativity out of us rather than help us develop it I mean, you've never met a five-year-old that isn't creative and curious and, you know, but, but then yeah, there's, it's been said that we start kindergarten with a full set of crayons and we graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. And, and that's a shame. By the way, I'm not vilifying teachers. Teachers are heroes. It's a systemic problem. And think about what you were told in school. You're told that there's only one right answer and you better not make any mistakes and guess what the teacher knows. And, and meanwhile, if you follow that path in the real world, it's a surefire path to mediocrity. Furthermore, we tend to, especially now more than ever, specialize. And so if you're specialized in computational, algorithmic, whatever, like all of a sudden you have a single view of the world. And often creativity happens by fusing and matching and, 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 and mashing up things from different places of life. So if we're, if we're totally tunnel vision into a particular specialty, that can actually also further uh, make us less, less creative. That's the bad news. The good news is that all of us can regain those skills. Again, it's a really a natural state. And so we can dust off the cobwebs, we can remove those barriers, and we can very quickly get back into the state of our natural state of being a creative person. Again, in different ways. You know, we say creativity, you instantly think of someone painting with oil on canvas. And that's not the only definition of creativity. You can be a creative car salesman. You can write creative code. You can be a creative furniture manufacturer. You can be a creative conversationalist or parent. And so when we expand our definition of creativity, all of us can, can do that with a little bit of practice. And that to me is what's so exciting and liberating is that, yeah, even though our schools have kind of beaten us out, out of us, we can regain it very quickly and put it to use to drive the, the, the things that we care the most about as human beings. I think that's, that's beautifully put, Josh. So um, if, 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 you, if you look at um, basically any company's inception and how they are formed, so some companies, so if, if you are at a scale um, stage, um, in, in, in your incubation or in your journey. So you know the math works. You know that you don't have to be innovative, just do it more, get more hired. And and, and if you are sort of in that rut of, of scaling or, or sort of ex expanding, like many times I, I spoke to businesses who are, who are uh, um, hiring rapidly, they fall on the trenches of when it comes to innovation. They say, hey, I definitely I have so much time, but right now I'm busy running. So I, I, I'll take a pause. And, and I think there's a, there's a meme going around as well that... Um, I don't have um, uh, I don't have time to to test out um, I think a bazooka and I'm I'm just I'm just too busy with my sword right so that's with with that mindset how do you when you um, see from your vantage point businesses how do you grapple or, or how do you sort of console these guys say how much how much they should adjust to the innovation and what what role does it play for for a company that's actually pretty mature and going on and they have seen growth by just running rather than looking around and appreciating the hacks and cracks uh, in the ecosystem. We're exactly right that many organizations hire smart, talented, creative people, and then they don't let them use any of those skills. Uh, and so I think as leaders, a primary role of leadership, in fact, is to create the cultural conditions to optimize the creative output of your team. If you think about it as a natural resource that becomes a significant competitive advantage when hardest, it's almost irresponsible not to. 
And the companies that never create, all they do is heads down execution on the past. Let's look at let's look at those. How did that work for Pan Am Airlines? How about Osmobile? How's that working out for Osmobile? You know, so like you look at all these, you know, business graveyard is littered with people that were good at executing and they just they just extinguish the, the creative vibe. So I think that here's the, what a leader's responsibility is. First of all, to recognize that creativity should and must come from everywhere. If you have 10,000 people, it shouldn't be from the five people in the R&D lab. It should be from all 10,000 people. And furthermore, people can create in different ways. We think of innovation as product innovation or marketing innovation, but why can't you have safety innovation or, or process innovation? So, so I think we can operationalize creativity as, as a tool and apply it to almost every, any area of business. So the first thing that leaders need to do is remove the fear. Fear, not natural talent, fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. It's that poisonous force that robs us of our best thinking. We've all done it. You know, you're in a meeting, you have a great idea, but instead of sharing it, you hold it back because you don't want to look foolish or say the wrong thing. And so fear and creativity cannot coexist. If a leader has a platitude in the lobby that says, we love innovation, but then when someone shows up with a half-baked idea, they're sent to corporate timeout, you've trained that person to never share creative creative ideas again. So the first job of leaders is to create a cultural environment that supports ideation, that supports and nurtures creativity, the good ones, the bad ones, and everyone in between. Wow. I think that's, that's, I couldn't have said any, any, any better on that. So um, in your um, discussing with, with, with businesses or, or, or um, in your research to the book, um, what have you found some of the successful stories? Like what are, where have you seen, uh, innovation coming from art places? Like, what would you say? What what have you found? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that. So the book is filled with really interesting stories that you haven't heard. So it's not featuring Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. And nothing wrong with those guys. Like, Netflix is awesome. But everybody knows that. In the book, I cover fascinating stories of people that you don't know. I cover the story of of three people who were working on their doctorate degree in, in a small lab at UC Santa Barbara that came up with a way to um, significantly improve uh, uh, the, the processing of food. So it turns out that one of nine people on the planet don't have enough stuff to eat, which is awful. And po as population increases, that, that problem's only going to improve, increase. But a lot of it had to do with food spoilage. So fresh fruits and vegetables spoil, as we know. And, and that actually 40% of the world's food supply goes to waste due to spoilage. So if you fix that problem, everyone has enough to eat. So these three Everyday innovators started tinkering and figuring out and asking questions and getting curious. And they started thinking, well, well how does nature protect fruit? Well, mm. every fruit and vegetable has a peel. They say, well, what does the peel do? It keeps the oxygen out and keeps the water in. Well, and they started, again, asking questions, getting creative. What they ended up doing is coming up with something called appeal sciences, where they take the natural elements of the peel, it's all organic, and, and have a spray that goes over an avocado or a grapefruit or banana or a strawberry that improves the life of that peel by three to five times, which means that food doesn't spoil and gets to people who need it. The companies raised all this money and they're now valued at over a billion dollars. And so it's uncovering the stories like that. And, and the cool part is that everyday innovation is happening in every sector. In the book, I cover how an ex-con who was a drug lord that was put in prison launched an incredibly successful fitness company. I cover the story of a guy in London who barely got through college who's making a massive difference in the environment. And so we sort of travel the globe together and uncover the stories of these fascinating, incredibly creative people that have enjoyed real success and, and made a meaningful difference, yet they haven't reached broken through to celebrity status. And to me, it's so encouraging because we can relate to people like that. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to relate to some, you know, someone who, who made $80 billion. But I can relate to people who have done cool things with their own grit and determination and creativity. 
interesting and and in your um, observation what are some of the some of the tenets that you have found common across all these stories that you can say okay maybe that's the that's the precursor to something out, out like outlandish coming yeah so the cool thing is that it, i did find those commonalities thank you for asking and in the book we cover eight core mindsets core philosophies core obsessions of everyday innovators and so the whole second half of the book, after we cover the research and the foundation and such, is really based on these eight core principles. And there's some of them are kind of surprising. Uh, one, just to share a couple, I mean, one of them is called um, use every drop of toothpaste. And the notion here is around being resourceful and using your ingenuity instead of relying on external resources. Um, you, you said earlier, you know, many people say they, they want to be creative, but they don't have enough time. I hear this all the time, by the way. I don't have enough fill in the blank. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough raw materials. Uh, but but think about this. If the amount of external resources that you had equaled your creative output, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet mm -hmm. and startups would be the least. So we know that that isn't true. And we know that there's ways to, to be gritty and scrappy. And, and, and sometimes those resource constrained situations drive more creativity. A couple other ones, just since we're chatting about it, one of them is start before you're ready which is the principle, instead of waiting for a directive or permission or an assignment or till you have ideal conditions, when, when you see a problem, you just start getting after it, fully recognizing that you don't have all the answers yet and that you're gonna figure, that, figure it out as you go. So it, it's, a, it's a sense of, of being willing to be agile and adapting and course correcting and pivoting as you go, but taking the initiative to get going quickly. So these are just a couple of the themes. There's a couple other fun ones. One is called Don't Forget the Dinner Mint which is the notion that if you plus up a work product by just a teeny little bit of extra creativity, it can have a disproportionate uh, net result for you. So each, each of the principles is backed up with research and fun stories and, and techniques, and it's, it's, it's both fun and practical at the same time. Interesting. And um, if you, uh, I, I'm curious, like what's the role of uh, say abundance or frugality when it comes to being, being creative and innovative? Like, have you found anything any any relation with that, uh, with how innovative a particular company or a particular a person is? Yeah, so that's a really thoughtful question. Uh, I think that philosophically, people with abundance, uh, their abundance mindset, that's helpful to driving creativity. Because when you think about scarcity, you're very much like worried about what you're lacking or going to let go of as opposed to thinking that there's abundance in the world. So I think an abundance mindset is helpful. That being said, I don't think you need an abundance of resources. In fact, sometimes frugality in, of innovation drives better uh, creativity. That's funny. I started writing code. I know you write, write code, but like I wrote code in 1983. And at that point, I had 48K of memory, not 48 mm. meg, mm. not 48 gig, 48K. And mm. so what would happen is we kept running out of memory. So you had to make really efficient code. Like I'd have to go remove a comma to make sure that the code, like I didn't run out of memory. Today with unlimited memory, we don't have that problem. And I would argue that the code of the past perhaps was written in a more elegant way. So there are times when abundance of resources doesn't necessarily drive creativity but an abundance of thinking a mindset of abundance certainly does interesting and and in your um in your journey of preaching or or spreading the the, the voice on on being creative and innovation what are some of the things uh, some of the bottlenecks that you have seen businesses struggling with that are you say okay these are very easily um some of the some of the some of the excuses you can call it or you can call it bottleneck whichever however you want to see it what are some of those, if you can share some? Yeah, you brought one up earlier where people are really heads down. You know, they're, they're just, I, I'm doing the work of today. I got to execute. And, I'm, and there's nothing wrong with execution, by the way. In fact, my first book was called Disciplined Dreaming, which mm -hmm. is the notion that you really need both of these, the, the yin and yang there. You need to have 
rigor and discipline or you got a problem, but you also need to have some creativity or you've got a problem. And so what, what I recommend in the same way, if you invest, even if you have a small portfolio, most people have a balance. They, they don't put every everything in one stock. So you, you sort of allocate resources accordingly. You might have some in really safe stuff. You might have a little teeny bit in more risky stuff. So leaders are better off thinking about their investment of resources in a similar way. And so you might say, okay, I'm going to invest 80% of the time in really just heads down work. And then I'm going to invest another 10% of the time in pretty safe stuff that's a little less heads down, maybe future oriented, but but still pretty conservative. But take five or 10%. That's when we really need to. I think it's our responsibility to be thinking about the future. In fact, one of my arguments, I wrote a piece long ago about it, is that every company should have a chief startup officer. Not a chief innovation officer, chief startup officer. Chief innovation officers are hired and they have these big dreams and they quickly get sucked into the whirlwind and they're trying to hit next month's, next quarter's earnings targets with innovation. So they end up closing their aperture very tight on short-term gains, incremental gains. They say, we can't, we got to protect the past. A chief startup officer, all they would do is think about what would the company be? What would it look like the company that would come along and put us out of business? What startup is going to wipe us off the map? And let's go become that. And so someone who has no line responsibilities, no ability to focus on, they're not even charged with anything within the next two or three years. They're charged with reinventing the future. I think it's a crucial role that really isn't being filled in most companies. But I think the, the, the headline here is that, yes, we need to be heads down at times, but we also need to be heads up. That's a, that's a very interesting point. So it reminds me of a conversation I had with this executive of a, of a heavy engineering company. And he said, Vishal, you know what? Every year we acquire 17 companies and we successfully integrate three. So we have backlog of as, as, as far as 14 years when companies have not even will make into the DNA of this company and they will go bust. So, and, and now imagine running that ship with that, with that sort of high on, 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 this, on the signal. So everyone is guessing if, if you look from a statistical point of view. And now when you talk about say uh, being innovative or having this culture of innovation or culture of creativity, and and then when you bring the bring in the data scientist on that, they say, okay, when the technology is too early, too small, it's not it's it's flying below the radar for any companies to figure out that they, what's innovation is happening. Then they then they go to their hockey stick growth, and then after a while they just go uh, too big and and too premium for us for the companies to indulge with. So they have a very small sliver window or to actually capture innovation, which which could be disrupting them and. So from your vantage point, like how would you how would you navigate that? How would you get navigate that that analysis? Yeah, well, good good question. First of all, I would I would dismiss the notion that innovation again is only big transformative stuff. So if you think of like, hey, once every five years we got to catch one innovation that's either going to make or break our company. What if instead you said, hey, how about every day if we have a thousand people on our company, we're each person going to generate five new ideas. So so now we've got that many thousands of ideas floating around. We're going to run constant little teeny experiments that are controlled, fixed time, fixed money experiments. We're going to purposefully discard eighty five percent of those. Fifteen percent will merit further exploration. We'll then move forward with 3% of them, but we've got this huge pipeline of, of little ideas and big ideas, and we're just a creative company instead of betting the entire farm on, on one thing. You know, I think it, it, it becomes, people think it's risky, not because innovation itself is risky. In fact, standing still is far more risky, but, but betting everything on, a, on, a, on a, a flyer, that's what's risky. So we can de-risk the process of innovation when we stop only thinking of it as big stuff and, and get down to the little stuff. Second of all, though, I would say that you know, I know you're you kind of poking fun at this company with from a data scientist standpoint, they had a high failure rate. Um, that probably is too high of a failure rate, to be clear. But mm. a failure rate of zero is too low of a failure mm. rate. 
if you have a failure rate of zero, that means you're not taking enough risks. Uh, so you say, what's an optimal failure rate? In Silicon Valley, you tend to see somewhere uh, in the range of 20 to 40% uh, mm-hmm. a, a minimum a failure rate, some, some much higher. Google has a higher failure rate than that. And that's okay. And we have to realize that, 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 that stumbles and successes are part of the innovative process. Like, thank God there's a new, there's many uh, vaccines now for COVID. But think about how that worked in a lab. It wasn't like some guy ran down the hall and was like, hey, dude, I got an idea for COVID vaccine. Go print a bunch of them. And gee, I mm-hmm. hope it works. That would be crazy. What happens is they have a couple ideas. They test out hundreds of things in the lab. Some work, some don't. They tinker, they adapt, they run a second test, they, they fix it, and then they march it down the field in a systematic and rigorous way. That's how innovation optimally works. It's not just betting everything on some crazy ass idea. So that you know, those are those are a couple of things to think about. Is that we have to be we have to be able to tolerate some bad ideas on the way to good ones because often it's not the the first idea. It's the idea that leads to the idea that leads to another idea. That's the keeper. That's that's a very interesting and and COVID is a a great example. So um, if if you are in a business, obviously COVID has impacted, and this is one such case where the outside is influencing the inside, right? So I I want to grow, but the, everything outside is sort of uh, going in a heavy direction. So from your vantage point, what is the state of innovation when we are in this state of uh, obscurity, or I don't know what's going on, I don't know. Uh, every every external sort of parameters are changing, which is in many ways disruption. Do does that to many companies? But like, what, what's your vantage point? Like, what what's your what's your take on that? Well, first of all, you know, a, a note of, of of empathy and 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 concern for those that have really struggled through this time, health wise and financially and everything else. Certainly, don't mean to be glib about the real challenges that people have and will continue to face. Um, that being said, looking at it from a positive standpoint, I do think there's an opportunity here in that the world is hitting a giant reset button. In other words, patterns, uh, consumer patterns, consumer loyalty, uh, company processes have all been disrupted, not not by our choice, obviously, to an external point, as you mentioned, but but now there's a chance to, to rethink them. And so I think that this is giving a lot of people an opportunity to, to sort of re, reshuffle the deck in terms of how you do your work, how you do your job, how you live as a person, how you interact with your family. And as the world hits a giant reset button, there really is a big opening. That creates an opening for new entrants, whether it's a startup or a bigger company that's trying new things, because people are going to be less committed to the old way as a result of this giant reset. Interesting. And and from, would you see um, how businesses take innovation, uh, their appetite changing because of this phenomena? Like, what, What's your take on that? I do. I think it's accelerated innovation in many cases because people who were coasting along, and we know this, it happens all the time. You know, you're just coasting along, riding on previous success, uh, trying to hit your monthly bonus as opposed to trying to reinvent the world. And, and then, you know, so there's no reason, there's no impetus. So people can become comfortable in their ways. COVID strikes, that's a big shaking up of things. And I think it's caused people to really take a hard look in the mirror and reconsider everything from their product line to their approaches to their to the way they interact and their and their company culture. So I do think it's accelerated innovation in many cases. I've heard many companies actually that I work with have said, you know, we've we've made all this massive innovation in the last few months. We had planned to do it anyway, but this this served as an accelerant. And and I do think that that's happening in 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 every corner of the world, frankly. Interesting. And and what are some of the some of some of misconception when it comes to and, and you, you pointed out that it doesn't have to be disruptive. It, ha- it doesn't have to be big. What are some other uh, misconception you think people have about when it comes to innovation or being creative? Yeah, I think that people discount little ideas. And, and I think that the better way to think of it is that they those little ideas add up to big stuff. 
Harvard study recently published said that 72% of gross domestic product in the United States doesn't come from the giant ideas. It comes from the little ones, from big little breakthroughs. And so they don't earn the media attention as when Elon Musk launches a new space rocket. But it's those little things where, where someone does an innovative way and they, their, their closing percentage increases as a salesperson. Or someone else in a factory does an innovative thing and they save you know 0.2% of margin per unit. And, and those are not glamorous, but they add up to big stuff. And the cool thing there, though, is that it's within our grasp. Like That means that every one of us can be an innovator. And I just love that. To me, it's just freeing. In fact, you know, we, we, in technology, we do upgrades all the time. We upgrade our hardware, we upgrade our software. And, and I'm saying, well, why can't we upgrade our creativity? And, and my suggestion to people is, instead of thinking about, I want to do a 100% upgrade, like I'm going from one processor to the next, and it's an you know, 80% increase in performance, think about a 5% creativity upgrade, just 5%. And 5% is absolutely within the grasp of all of us. It feels really manageable and, and accessible, but it's a high leverage activity because a 5% upgrade might yield 100% better results. I mean, many of the outcomes in our lives are binary. You make the deal or you lose the deal. You know, you get the job or you don't get the job. Uh, and so in those binary outcomes, which are often in photo finish type margins of error, that little boost of creativity can be the, the advantage, the edge that we're seeking. And so I would say that it's a pretty simple thing. If, if we focus a little energy and getting a little bit more creative, it can yield a disproportionately large set of results uh, in the things that matter most to us. Interesting. So I was talking to, um, this reminds me of an of a interesting conversation I had with this um, this large bank. They're not known for their creativity, by the way. So I was I was um, talking to them about um, how can they create, how, how they harness the culture of, of creativity and innovation within their groups. And, and this particular um, person's response was that um, um, since it's very creativity and innovation is linked to so much um, to the culture of a company, it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to change the culture. We try, but obviously there was a pushback, this pushback. So it's a constant battle. And and and, and she said, I don't see um, the story any different from for any other larger entities. They all struggle. And there's a reason I, we would rather die than, than being creative. And he said, "It's not. It's not what we want. It's. It's basically. It's the culture as a whole is designed in a way that it's very difficult to shift, and very few are lucky enough to shift that." Was like, "What is what? What's your what's your thinking behind it? What, what What do you think?" Well, first of all, and I certainly don't mean disrespect for this, but if they they say our choice is to get creative or die, uh, they're likely going to die if they don't. I mean, that's that's a, a prophetic. Uh, that, that was that was a good prediction there, unfortunately. Um, and I think this notion of that we can't or that I'm a victim to it. It's really um, a, a disheartening in that I really think we can. And we've seen organizations transform. We've seen organizations get creative. doesn't mean it's easy, but what things in life that are worth doing are easy. You know, and, and it can happen both ways. It can happen from the top down and it can happen from the ground up. We've seen innovation spark in little pockets in big companies and and they, it might be a little moonshot project or it might be a little you know skunk works thing and it grows into something magical. And we've also seen leaders take the helm of big companies and, and and set install a different set of beliefs, a different set of rituals and rewards that supports the creative process rather than restricts it. I mean, one that comes to mind is a friend of mine named Ivy Ross. She was she's now at Google, but she was the head of innovation at Mattel. And uh, they were actually, even though it's a toy company, feeling rather not creative. Hmm. And so she went to the CEO and said, look, is, is creativity part of the job or not? He said, oh, yeah, of course it is. And she said, all right, well, then we're just doing it wrong. So she convinced him to do something really cool. She said, if we can lose people for 90 days for maternity leave, why can't we let people take a sabbatical, a controlled sabbatical for innovation leave? 
So she created this thing, which she called Project Platypus, where she would she gathered cross-functional people from all around the company, different roles, different, you know, everything, and, and took them to a different building on the campus. They were absolved of all line responsibility. And they would first started learning to get creative. They went to improv classes, they went on field trips, and then they were given work product to, to, to reimagine what Mattel might look like. And so she she did uh, the, she set up a goal. She wanted like one medium idea and two small ideas was the goal for the year, which would more than pay for the program. And in the first session, she did these 90 day sessions, they created a billion dollar idea. And it's since gone on to become this wildly successful innovation engine. By the way, not only do they create great work product, when those people go back to their day job, they've been transformed. They're whole different, the different mindset and they act as mm -hmm. creativity accelerants throughout the entire Mattel workforce. So I would say, yes, you're right. It's not easy. Yes, you're right. There are obstacles. But I think, it, gosh, that not that our responsibility as leaders is to tap the creative resources of our people? Think about it like this. If you had an oil well in your backyard and you didn't tap it, you know, you're really not being a very good fiduciary. And, mm, and on the other hand, if, we, if all we do is go after it with, with, a, with a little shovel that's made out of plastic, that, that's not going to work so well. So isn't it our job to like whatever we can do to put you know, commercial grade drilling materials out there and, and get that resource to life? Well, if you think about this, creativity is a natural non-pollutive, renewable, free resource that doesn't hurt the environment. And it's inside all of our workforces. Shame on us if we don't bring it out. A fair point, fair point. So um, if if let's talk about Little Big Breakthroughs, uh, the book. So by the way, very clever title. So if you can walk us through the history of the title, what brought you to pick that name? Well, I like the name Big Little Breakthroughs because it makes you wonder what are you talking about? Like it asks a question, you know, we're, we are so focused on big breakthroughs and we fail to celebrate the little ones. And, and I started thinking, okay, is, could, could we help people form a daily habit of creativity instead of thinking of it as a once a decade effort? Could we make creativity more fun and more accessible? And and that's that's the engine behind it. And when you really study great creative works, there are a series of small things that that, that come together for, for great results. Uh, the book cover, I don't know if you noticed, but it's based on the art form of pointillism. Hmm. So Pointless. pointillism, for those that aren't familiar with art, it's a single primary color and you make a single dot on a page, like a dot of green. And my four-year-old daughter, Talia, could make a dot of green, no problem. So the, the individual act actually isn't that specialized. But when you start adding a couple more to it and you add a couple other colors, each of those dots, they add up to a masterpiece. And that's really how creativity works. It's not some lightning bolt of inspiration from the heavens and then you, you know, the, the idea appears. It's lots and lots of little dots. Even after initial ideas, it takes many dozens or, or hundreds or even thousands of little micro innovations to bring an initial idea to life. So creativity is an ongoing process of little teeny bites at the apple, not a giant swing. And that's what I wanted people to get, get from the book is that, that, you know, one little teeny dot at a time, we can all be creative. Beautifully put. So, um, if we, um, uh, Walk us through the the research of the book. Walk us through the journey to writing this book. What what have you unsurfaced? What people you talked to? Watch, walk us through some of the stories. Yeah, it was really a very fun process for me. Um, I did a bunch of academic research, which, uh, by the way, you know, might sound kind of geeky, but it's I, I didn't present it in a geeky way. So we 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 studied musicians and fMRI machines creating their art form and what's going on in the human brain. And there's all these fascinating discoveries of neuroscience recently, even that show that again, back to the point that we all can be creative. And we looked at data in terms of hiring patterns and what what CEOs are saying is going to be the most important job skills in the future. Um, uh, Spoiler alert, in, in 2025, the World Economic Forum is saying that four of the top five most needed job skills all tie to creativity in one form or another. 
Mm-hmm. So again, it, it, sh- it really supports the, the, the case, if you will, that this is not optional anymore. It's mission critical. But then as I got into the stories, this was really fun, man. I, I interviewed the CEO of, of the Drone Racing League, a guy who, who built a brand new professional sporting league using drones controlled by remote controls and people wearing you know AR helmets. I interviewed a, a pair of inventors in Israel who reimagined the baby bottle and, and, and completely broke the mold and made a way better baby bottle. I interviewed somebody who came up with the first commercially uh, viable electric motorcycle, and it wasn't from Harley Davidson. So we, we, we unpacked these stories of these fascinating, like compelling, amazing innovators that most of us have never heard of. And, and to me, again, it's, it's so cool because we don't look out that innovation only counts for the top 10 people in the country. It, like, if we have 300 million comp- people in, in the United States, why can't we have 300 million innovators? How cool is that? Fascinating. Fascinating. So, and, and um, what are some of the insights? What are some of the insights um, or, or takeaways that, that you, you got for, um, uh, in your research uh, when it comes to innovation and, and, and uh, creativity? Yeah, again, we, we cover a lot of these mindsets, but also some tactics. Uh, it's funny, I, I tried to once and for all kill brainstorming. Uh, you know, brainstorming is the technique most people use to generate ideas. It was invented in 1958. And I'm sorry, but a lot has changed since 1958. And, and really, brainstorming is a very effective technique to yield mediocre ideas. Because what happens is, thinking we've all done it, we're in a meeting, and, and, and you, instead of sharing your crazy ideas, you only share your safe ones because you don't want to look foolish. And so I share in the book a whole toolkit of fresh, fun, you know, way more productive techniques. I think of them as idea jamming instead of brainstorming, but 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 helping people extract the ideas that that lay within. A couple examples. One of them is called the judo flip. So a judo flip is essentially looking at, let's say you're facing a problem or trying to seize an opportunity. You list out what are, what what are the traditional ways of doing it. What are all the the conventional wisdom approaches? How's everybody else done it? What have you done in the past? And then you sort of draw a line down the page and then say, what would it look like if I judo flip that? What's the polar opposite of each of those assumptions? And this whole notion of oppositional thinking is a really fun way to unlock ideas they wouldn't ordinarily think of. But one that I just read about, just you know, give you an example, uh, I thought was really funny. So it turns out there's 65,000 Chinese restaurants in North America. And by the way, many restaurants are very boastful. Like we have the world's best pizza or the world's you know, New York City's number one coffee. And we know that's a bunch of BS. It's a bunch of puffery. Nobody listens to it. So, in sh- so that if that's the norm, if that's the conventional way, is say a bunch of exaggerated claims. There's a Montreal Chinese restaurant that does the opposite. They judo flipped it. Mm-hmm. So on their menu, they list each item, and next to the item is it says owner's comments. And the owner of the restaurant goes and provides these hilariously brutal assessments. So he'd be like, "Oh, the kung pao chicken. This dish isn't very good. I'd recommend you get the Szechuan chicken instead. I think we overcooked <laughs> the mushrooms." And another one says like. Oh, I know you think this is an authentic dish, but I've been to China many times. This honestly isn't that authentic. Or another one is, this one's pretty good if you order it in, in, in cafe, but don't take it for takeout because it'll be all soggy and mushy by the time you get home. So he writes these very funny, brutally honest, the exact opposite. It's the judo flip of what everybody else does of being boastful. And as a result, way more Yelp reviews that everybody loves it. Here we are talking about this restaurant on the podcast. So it's just another example of how doing the opposite works. Mm. And, and the judo flipping is one of like 13 very fun and practical techniques that I share in the book. Uh, nice. And and um, how do you recruit these uh, these stories? Like how do you, I, I'm curious, like how do you end up uh, picking this this golden nuggets for, for, for you to share with all of us? 
Well, I have a pretty aggressive research team here and I'm always on the lookout. Like I, I collect stories like that. I'm, and people send me stuff all the time. I mean, I just got an email the other day, like, Hey, how do you cool off a, a glass of wine? And I was like, I don't know. They're like, well, if you put ice in a glass of white wine, it, it, it dilutes the wine. But if you put mm. a frozen grape in the wine, perfect. I'm like, boom, mind blown. Awesome. So anyway, I, I do get a lot of, you know, feedback and stuff. Uh, but in, in the, from the book, I, I actually, um, I looked all over the world and my team and I did research up and down and found these really bizarre places. And you'd be surprised what will happen when you call people up and their willingness to talk to you. Again, I talked to uh, several billionaires that shared their inside stories with me. Um, I, and, and sometimes I've read, I read an article in you know some weird journal and I just called them up and I didn't always get, get through, but many times I did. And I, I personally interviewed just fascinating people around the world. Wow, and 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 what's the what's the incubation cycle for this book? Like, how long have you have you done the interviews and research uh, it took you to to get to this book? Well, it reminds me of the old Picasso thing, where you know a woman asked him to draw a picture, and and he drew it very quickly, and told her it was a million dollars, and she said, "But sir, that only took you three minutes." And he says, "No, ma'am, that's that's taken me a lifetime." So the the the, the macro answer is, you know, I've been studying human creativity and as a practitioner for for forty years. But um, the book itself, uh, without being glib about it, it's about a two-year process. I spent a, a good two years really deep hustling, you know, in, in the philosophy of it, in, in writing it, and researching, and and I'm very proud of it. Honestly, it's it's the best thing I've written. I can, I, I'm, it's no, you know, Hemingway or anything, but I do feel proud that it's it's a piece of art that I can be proud of. Um, so, um, in, from your vantage point, who is who is the ideal reader for the book? Like, who do you wrote this book for? Well, that's the cool thing. You know, my previous ones were, were primarily written for business people of, of all levels, you know, for CEOs and startups alike. But um, this one is really more broad. It's absolutely applicable to people working on their career, people who want to grow their business, grow their, 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 their career trajectory, make more money, all that stuff. But it also applies to in a more broad sense. I mean, it's for the, the high potential person that's that's just getting started in life. It's for the college student that doesn't know what yet to do. It's for the the, the mom who's trying to become a more effective parent. It's for the person in their community that wants to to give back. It's for the lawyer who wants to win more cases. You know, it's for the the dentist that wants to make a build, build a better dental practice. So I, you know, it's certainly not all things to all people. But if someone says, "Listen, there there are outcomes that I want in my life that I I'm I want that I want to achieve, and maybe I'm struggling to get there," and, and saying it's for people to consider, maybe there's a more creative way. Maybe creativity could be a superpower that would help me seize those outcomes. And so for those that are that want to use a productive sort of rigorous approach to achieving more i think the book is spot on and and if if i am a say um uh, a reader or, or if i am a listener to, to this conversation um should i be worried if i'm not uh, if i'm not creative like how sh what's your to, what's a litmus test where you can say okay you are covered or you're not like you should do something about it or something like what how would you say to a business or an individual that you should be maybe more creative or less creative is there any some is there anything like that yeah, you know, it's funny. It always breaks my heart when I hear people say, oh, I'm not that creative or that's not for me. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's so true that like we are all creative. We all have the capacity to be creative. Now, like someone saying, well, I could never learn to speak or I could never play tennis or something. Like we, you could learn it. You could, we all can learn it. And, and it also bugs me when someone says, oh, here's my company tour. The creatives sit over on the second <laughs> floor. Like, no, the creatives are everywhere. We're all creative, period. Uh, again, some of us have developed the skill more than others. Nothing wrong with that, but but we all really can be creative. So there's no person out there that that is un, not creative. They, they can't read the book. It's the opposite. Um, and I, in terms of, you know, could you be too creative? I don't think you could be too creative, but I think you you shouldn't be irresponsible. 
the book doesn't encourage you to take crayons and draw all over the walls. The, the, the book encourages you to use creativity for productive results, not not for you know, not just for the sake of it. Um, but but I do want to answer your question. I think of creativity a lot more like your weight than your height. So for me, I'm a pretty short guy. As much as I try, I'm probably not going to be six four in a couple of weeks. Hmm. But I I could grow my or, or shrink my weight based on factors, you know, nutrition, exercise, etc. And creativity is just like that. We can't control our heights, but we absolutely control our weights. And you can control how creative we are. If someone wants to take a, a quick jump on the scale, though, to see how they're doing, I put together an assessment. It's totally free, by the way. It's at biglittlebreakthroughs.com. It's really short. It's like five minutes. And it gives you a sense of, of like your weight right now. Like How are you sitting right now creatively? And it po- points out a couple areas where you might want to focus on improving them. It's not criticizing you in any way. And again, everyone's weight can change over the years. It's just giving you a snapshot of where things look today and what areas might need a little extra boost. And um, I- I'm curious um, um, to know your point of view when it comes to other sort of frameworks on creativity. So when you say design thinking on other things, like, do you think uh, from your vantage point, if these things work or how would you, how would you grapple if someone says, okay, can I follow a framework or do you think it's, it's just some, uh, some, like, how would you say that? Yeah, I think frameworks in general are very productive. As mentioned, I play jazz music. It's my passion. And um, mm-hmm. when, when you, when I play with a group of jazz musicians, less than 1% of the notes are on the written page and the rest we have to improvise as we go. But it's not just like, you know, crazy improvisation. There are frameworks that we use. I know certain patterns are going to work. I know that while I might have never played the exact same thing twice, I know, you know, there's, there's a way to navigate it. And just like you and I are speaking a language, we're not just making random syllables. Language really is a framework. And so I think frameworks in general are very good and helpful to provide a little scaffolding to help people kind of get their creativity surfaced. Whether someone chooses to use design thinking, which is great or a different framework. I don't think that there's one size fits all. Just like when I play jazz, there's not like one scale that you never use anything other than that one scale. I mean, a G chord is beautiful, but so is a C minor chord. You know, like there's there's many ways to do it. But I think the notion of frameworks is really productive. I share one in, in Big Little Breakthroughs. I shared a different one in my first book, Discipline Dreaming. But I don't even think that there's a one size fits all. I think the more we learn about multiple frameworks, it's like learning multiple chords to play. It only is going to elevate your art. Interesting. And if, if I'm a business or if I'm an individual, so you, you said there's a, there's a test, uh, there's a uh, test I can take on biglittlebreakthrough.com to understand. So if I need to put a check on or need to understand where I stand or, or some quick fixes you could recommend uh, that gets me, gets me set up uh, becoming creative or innovative, like what would that be? Like what would you have some things that you that people can quickly snappily do and, and get themselves at least a small nudge towards being creative. Yeah, totally. That's the cool part is that it doesn't take years of study and billions of dollars and you know all this stuff. You don't have to quit your job. Like we can all be creative quickly. So so you can answer that question differently organizationally and individually. So just starting on the individual one, you know, in the book I cover a five minute a day creativity workout. So if you think about going to the gym to build your muscles, well we can build our creativity muscles actually literally in five minutes a day. I do this every day. I did it today. I, 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 there's a couple of, it's like doing jumping jacks for your creativity. Now, one thing I do real quickly, just so we're talking about it is I guzzle one minute of inputs mm-hmm. in software. As you know, if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. And so if we want to be more creative, one really simple thing is spend one minute, one minute a day. And maybe you watch a great performance of music on YouTube, or maybe you stare at a piece of art, or maybe you read a poet piece of a poem out loud, but just guzzling the creative inputs of others instantly frames you in a creative mindset. Second thing I do is I give myself some weird random problem and I, and you can, I can give you some if you want, but like one would be, um, 
what are six alternative uses for a pencil? Or if I had to market uh, uh, 10,000 um, ball bearings in a non-traditional way, what, what could I make those into? And you might say, oh, you can make them as, uh, as weights to hold down curtains, or you could use them for uh, confetti at a punk rock concert, or you could use them as robot caviar. You know, like, so the idea is, you know, using, again, the, the goal here isn't to, to have output. It's not work product related. It's to build the skill. So that's one thing we can do very quickly. Another thing I've suggested people do is, is try this. It's really fun. A 5% creativity challenge. So if you, and this works organizationally and individually. As mentioned, we spend most of our professional lives being heads down, where we're getting the task done, crossing stuff off of our to-do list. But if you take 5% of your time for 21 days being heads up, here's what that looks like. 5% of a 40-hour work week is two hours. Schedule two hours a week as if it was the most important meeting that can't be broken. And in that two hours, it could be like, even if they're four 30-minute sessions, doesn't have to be all at once. That's time where your head's up, where you let your mind wander, where you doodle, where you explore, where you click on the link and go down a rabbit hole and just let your mind listen to music or just do some of the exercises even in the book. And here's what's happened. I've done this to thousands of people around the world. First thing I hear back is a 0% drop in productivity. Zero. Mm -hmm. So magically, 40 hours of work gets smushed into 38 hours. No one misses a beat. Mm -hmm. Second thing I hear back, week number one, people say, oh, this is so frivolous. I feel like I'm cheating on my boss. Like, this is horrible. I, I, I feel so, you know, embarrassed. But by the last week, just a couple weeks later, they say that is the most productive mm. time they spend all week by far. This is where ideas come to life, where you reconnect the dots, where you re get reengaged. And, and, and I've seen people say, oh, there's no way, this is a stupid thing. Try it for 21 days. And then years later, they're still doing it. So again, I think there's some really accessible things that don't require a bunch of time, money, or energy that can get the juices flowing very quickly. That's, I think that reminds me of 10% happy or 10% or happiness challenge. I think beautifully put small, small little steps. And I think it, it goes a long way uh, compoundingly. I think beautifully put. So, um, uh, Josh, uh, we're at the, at the tail end of the conversation. And let's spend a few minutes on your journey, if, if you don't mind. So, uh, fabulous guy. You And thank you so much for all what you're doing uh, to educating all of us, being creative and innovative. Um, what gets you going? What's your secret to uh, what whatever you are today? You know, I mentioned several times I'm a jazz musician and I started playing jazz, which is, by the way, this fun, improvisational, messy art form where you take responsible risks and make a bunch of mistakes and it's messy and cool. And I feel like, man, I still play jazz. I just use different instruments, although I still play music. But I, when I'm building a company, it's sort of the same thing. It's playing jazz or when I write a book or you know talking to you. So I feel like I'm a jazz musician that has, has gone beyond just playing musical instruments. And I get to play jazz all the time. I've, I've been involved in the launch of over 100 startups, either advising or helping to fund. I've invested in a bunch of startups and uh, one that's gone on to become a unicorn, you know, over a billion dollar value. And that's sort of the same thing. It's like this messy creative process. And that's to me, I just love doing that. And, and, and the way I look at it, I know this sounds you know, like, like hyperbole, but I really mean it, man, for my soul. I look at, at the human race and I say, there's people, people walking around, all of us, with a, a reservoir of dormant creative capacity. What if we could unleash just a little bit? And I think about how different the world would be. You know, let's just imagine that the entire country or the entire world for that matter was 5% more creative. That could have a radically big impact on educational outcomes or environmental outcomes or commerce or safety or, you know, wars, I mean, on and on, you know, things that we care about the most. And if, if, if you were like me and you see all these people walking around with this dormant capacity, and then you recognize full well what a massive difference it could make in the world if people bring just a little bit of that to the surface, 
you probably would feel the same way I do, which is I feel like I'm on this mission, like it's a calling to help people bring that to life. Not for selfish reasons, it's because the world's just gonna be a better place. Interesting. And and um, what are some some of the qual so some of the qualities that has helped you become what you have become? So what are some of the things that you really hone on to? Um, what would you say? One of them is a willingness to imagine what's possible instead of what is. And we obviously cover this a lot in the book. That's that's kind of a definition of creativity. But it's a you know it's it's a willingness to let go of 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 what's right in front of you and and sort of imagine something else. Uh, and and in doing so, really putting aside the executional challenge of getting there. Mm. So I tend to to think about what's really possible and then reverse engineer how to make it happen as opposed to the other way around. I think another one is is a willing is, is a lifelong learning. I just like you have all your books behind you. I mean, I just I'm constantly learning and reading. I love learning. There's nothing more fun to me than I learn something new. And by the way, you know how you learn stuff new a lot is when you screw something up. I mean, when you make a mistake, you learn pretty quick. And so uh, to, today, I'm proud mistake maker. I make mistakes all the time, big and small. Uh, just ask my wife. Uh, no kidding, but. Um, <laughs> I think I think mistakes are really healthy, and, and I think we learn from them. And 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 it's nice to be right, but it's to a degree almost better to be wrong because now you learn a different way of being right the next time. So that that's a pretty cool thing. I do think, uh, and this is my own personal view, not that everyone should believe in it, but I believe strongly in, in compassion and kindness. Um, something that I think we're lacking certainly in the political discourse these days uh, on both sides. By the way, I'm not taking a, a side, but um, mm. I just think that you know I, I've known many successful people who think that their job to be successful is to to put their boot on somebody else's throat and they're, mm. they're going to win at someone else's expense. And it's like this, if I give you an idea, it's not like you have the idea and now I don't have the idea. It's not like a zero sum game. You have the idea, but I have the idea too. Mm. How great is that? And so when you world back to this notion of abundance thinking, and I just think that the world is so much better when we're kind to each other and we're supportive and we embrace that abundance thinking and let's elevate each other instead of, instead of, instead of hold each other back. Uh, beautifully said, Josh. So um, let's talk about some of the books that, so besides um, your amazing book that obviously I'll, I'll put the link to um, uh, for our listeners and viewers on, on the descriptions. But uh, Josh, what are some of the other books that inspires you? I'm just going to grab my, my little cheat sheet right in front of me as we're talking. But um, as mentioned, I, I read a lot like you. I mean, I've got a bookshelf kind of like yours, but I'll just tell you some of my most recent favorites. Um, I recently read a book called Range by David Epstein, which talks about um, not going super deep into one discipline, but having more broad perspective. Think Again by Adam Grant is fantastic. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm most of the way through it. He's a wonderful author. When by Daniel Pink was terrific. I highly recommend that. Um, let's see. Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. Mm. Uh, wonderful, really cool. Uh, I just read Think Like a Rocket Scientist While We're Thinking Like Others by Ozan Varul, which was terrific. Uh, the Biggest Bluff by Marina Kornikova about the intersection of risk and decision-making. And uh, I mean, I could, I could go on and on. Uh, Catalyst by Jonah Berger was great. Upstream by Dan Heath was great. Uh, Stories That Stick by Kendra Hall I read last year, which was terrific. So, um, I mean, I, I think I'm like you, that that the more you read, the the, the better you get. Uh, Atomic Habits was a big favorite from James Clear. Yeah. So we, we could go on and on. <laughs> By the way, all great, uh, great selections. So I'll, uh, I'll put for our listeners and viewers uh, all, all the suggestions as well. So last but not the least, Josh. So if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, what would that be? Like, what would be your closing remark to our listeners and viewers? I'm going to kind of go back to where we started in that um, I feel like I'm on this mission to help everyday people become everyday innovators. And I really just want everyone to think just for one second with me, give me that this one second to say, okay, could I be an artist 
And again, let's not define artist as someone who paints on a canvas, but could you be an artist if you are a customer service rep or you work in retail or you, uh, you know, are a claims processor or an insurance company? Why can't we all be an artist of what we do? What if the word artist was added to your business card? And the truth is we can. The truth is we can. We can all bring creativity to the work. You don't have to change careers or jobs or companies. We can all add art. And when we add art in our own magical ways with our own voices, oh man, just it's so intrinsically rewarding. Your life is better. You feel good. And the, the, the outcomes that we crave start to manifest. So my deep suggestion with humility and, and love and respect is let's all become artists in our own ways. And I just think the world's a better place as a result. I think beautifully put, Josh. And, and again, uh, I could not thank you enough for being a crusader at this and and um, and you know, basically spreading the message on being creative and, in, and innovative. And I was talking to you before our, our session as well that it, it always amazes me that uh, how much our brain is capable of and what we end up doing with it. So I, I was telling I was telling someone uh, a couple of days back that from cave to today, whatever we did, it everything is in there. Like our brain is actually equipped to take from that journey to this journey. And it's I think it's crusader like you to help us keep reminding us that, okay, our brain can be a lot more worth what it is today. So uh, I could not thank you enough uh, for, for being that. And to, to, to your book's journey, I think I wish you nothing but success in your book. You're always... Uh, uh, welcome on the podcast uh, back again and uh, couldn't wait to hear the success that both this books generate and thank you so much on on your on, uh, for your time on this truly a pleasure and thanks for for hosting your podcast in general i think you're making a real difference in the world as well so i really appreciate it and uh, wish you and the, and the listeners all the best thank you um so josh thoughts suggestions I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it Then I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain